I think when things are going well, like you might be like, oh, thank you, God, and I know you're there. And But it's not like you're down on your knees necessarily, like really pleading and asking. And so I think that sometimes it's those most dire moments that figuratively bring you to your knees and literally bring you to your knees that really strengthen that relationship with God. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today's guests share that despite challenges we face, we can choose to bring joy and light to the dark corners. Emmy Award-winning journalist and author Lindsay Davis, and inspirational mother and daughter Angela and Grace Anna Rogers. Lindsay is a correspondent for ABC News and has filed stories for World News, Good Morning America, and Nightline. Falling in love with storytelling at an early age, Lindsay tried her hand at public speaking for the first time in church. Her faith in God has been key to her compassionate style of reporting and her desire to spread a message of hope to a world where the news isn't always good. My name is Lindsay Davis. I'm a correspondent for ABC News, a mom, a wife, and a book author. Both of my parents started out actually as school teachers. My dad taught math and my mom taught English and my dad went on to uh, open his own construction company. But And my mom has subsequently retired as uh, an English teacher. But um, she's the person that kind of made sure that I know, you know, the difference between like when you say done, like her common phrase is like turkeys get done and people get finished. And so the person that was like always making sure that I, you know, get lay versus lie, right? But I would I would say that she's also very much responsible for my kind of falling in love with with storytelling and and with writing and and the English language. My mom has always been a big writer and, and spent a lot of time in our house, you know, writing and kind of modeling that for me. And and certainly like she loves to tell the story story. Um, now she's like introducing me or something that I, I got mad at her, she says, when I was a certain age. And I said, you know, why didn't you tell me that these letters made words? Because I was so anxious to be able to read and write. And that was something that I think that she very much cultivated. Growing up, uh, I can remember being a toddler and getting a few quarters and putting it in a little dolly purse that I had and going off to, to Sunday school and, you know, giving my donation and um, being very involved in, you know, the children's choir and all the same things that I'm trying to impart on my son now, who's five, um, and making sure that he's, you know, we were, they called it the YPD, it was the Young People's Division at church when I grew up. And so those, on the fourth Sunday, that was the Children's Sunday. And so we did everything on Sunday except for preach. So we did the affirmation of faith and welcome of visitors and pass the plates for the offering. And I, when I look back now, I think that that was so important to, you know, who I am today. It was my first time, you know, ever doing any kind of public speaking was in church. I think that that confidence the building that goes on at that point you know that is what I'm looking at as far as what I feel was part of the building blocks of of success if you will it, it was all you know found the foundation was in the church and and again now I'm looking at making sure that I get that foundation uh, for my son I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up I ended up majoring in psychology in undergrad and I think that that still has very much like the base of, of what I do now. I have an interest in people and hearing their stories and talking to them about it. Um, and so I, I think that in a way that still kind of is relevant to what I do as a journalist. I studied abroad for a semester in London and it was the first time I'd already fulfilled my core curriculum classes. And so it was the first time in my college 
career that I was able to just take any class that I wanted. So I took a lot of like writing and British literature and um, happened to be in Spain with my Spanish exchange student from high school. And I was watching the news in her house in Spanish and, and my Spanish is not very good. So I can't say that I understood anything that they were saying. But in that moment, I said, that's what I want to do. And I will say, I guess it's a blessing or a curse, but I'm the kind of person who like, I really focus in on something and really don't let it go. So for whatever reason, I decided in their living room in Sevilla, Spain that day that that's what I want to do. Then I just started looking at like, what are the steps that I need to take in order to do that? I didn't know anybody who was in the business. I didn't have, uh, well, I knew someone who it was like a, indirectly like a family friend who owned some TV stations. And that's how I ended up getting my first job is like, uh, basically it was like a glorified intern um, and really didn't know quite what I was getting myself into. Didn't know the longevity that, you know, I might have, um, but figured I just graduated from, uh, at that point I had a, a master's degree in, in broadcast journalism, mass communication, and figured I ought to give it a try <laughs> pursuing a job in, in what I had majored in. Um, but I really didn't know like what the trajectory would be or, or where I was going to end up, but it just felt like this might be a good fit for me. We'll see. The hardest story ever to report, and I've been a journalist now for more than 20 years, uh, was the earthquake in Haiti. It was the first time that I had actually smelled death. And it sounds like, I think like a cliche I would read in a, about in a novel, but there is definitely like a smell to death. And especially when you have like corpses that are still just exposed in the street and nobody is tending to those bodies for several days at a time. Um, and I, I remember in particular doing one interview with a lady who only spoke French and we had a translator, but you know, the words actually needed no translation, like her feeling and sentiment. She said uh, that the translation in English was, um, and I don't even remember my question to her, but she said, I am my family now. And that was it. She, everybody that she knew of had died, all of her friends and all of her family. And she didn't have a house. She didn't have anything. Her church had been destroyed. And it was just a moment of, it, it was the first time that I actually covered a story. Normally I cover a lot of disaster, unfortunately, and, and death and mayhem. And I just go back to my regular life and don't skip a beat, really. Um, because I think there is kind of a separation, like of my putting my reporter hat on and then going home and, and being a mom. Often it's an easy transition between the two. And this one was not. I mean, this one I really got back home and thought about all the things that we take for granted that, you know, this woman and many others like her, hundreds if not thousands like her, were now in the same predicament of starting from scratch. And now, not even starting from scratch in the way of like physical uh, buildings and, and our material comforts, but she didn't have any family or, or any friends and a job. And so that was a really hard story. And we were there for, I think about, I was there, I think like maybe 10 days. So it was a lot. Um, you know, there are a lot of times that I can't explain um, and, it, and ours, I think, is not to really understand in some ways God's plan. It's like beyond our understanding. So when I'm thinking about, you know, particularly that woman in Haiti who's lost it all, and, and I, I cannot explain that, right? I can only talk about what God has done in my life and who he is in my life and my family. And as I'm 
teaching my son about who God is. It's really, it's, it's just like personal. And, and so I can only see, I mean, I can see God's hand in other people's lives for sure. But when really truly like, you know, catastrophic things happen, I, I, I don't know how to explain that, but I have to believe that God has a plan. Leading up to moderating the presidential debate, I was feeling nervous, like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be on this world stage and asking the questions of the uh, politicians and um, just knowing that there was a lot at stake. And so just feeling a lot of anxiety about that. And I've had a Jesus Calling on my nightstand for several years and have read it. Uh, but I, I will say again, I was making sure now, like during this time, I was looking for some word. I was looking for that confidence and... Um, you know, was regularly every day making sure I did not miss it. I was like starting out my day, you know, with whatever the devotional was for that day. And so when I was then going to Houston to do the debate, I had taken pictures of the days that I would be away so that I wouldn't actually have to bring the book. And I now if I'm thinking about it, I should have just downloaded the app, right? What was I thinking? But a little old school in that way. And so, but my husband uh, didn't realize I had taken those pictures. And so each day that I was in Houston, he would take a picture and then forward it to me, which I never told him that I already had the pictures and I'd already read because there was no way that I was going to go there without kind of being prepared and, and reading from Jesus Calling every day. Along with enjoying a successful career in journalism, Lindsay is committed to spread a message of love and acceptance, laying a foundation for the upcoming generation. She talks about the two children's books she has written and how her parents inspired her by the way they lived their own lives. For both books, um, I have to say that these were messages that my mom was trying to impart um, for me and I have an older sister. And so, you know, the first book, The Idea, it's like a, a celebration of everyday blessings. And so being thankful and being, you know, and that honoring God, I mean, that definitely was both of my parents. Um, maybe even more so directly uh, as far as as far as being spoken from my mom, but you know, really paying attention to the small things and and God's hand and fingerprint all over that. And um, in the second book, for sure, I mean, again, I think it was the same thing that I'm trying to do with my son. You know, back when I was growing up, like kind of in the in the '80s. I don't think that the climate was quite the same as what it is now. I mean, it's not like racism is, is new by any stretch, but I think the rhetoric has gotten kind of heightened. And so it's, so it's different. So maybe, you know, racism then was a little more subtle than it can be at times today. So I don't know that she had to be as deliberate. Um, like, I don't know that it was something that she had to make sure that she was telling us, because again, I think that she believes like I do that innately children just love. You know, they're not thinking about all the different, you know, divisions that we are quite often, many times as adults. There's just been more deliberate discussion about race lately um, that the children listen to and ask about. And so I, I think that I would be doing my son a disservice. I think we would be doing the children of his generation a disservice by trying to say, you're not old enough yet to talk about this, or we don't need to talk about this or whatever, and like, you know, try and sweep it under a rug. I think that we really need to, to meet it um, head on and talk about, yes, you know, there are people who think this or whatever, but guess what? We love them. I mean, that's the, what is it? So the first commandment, right, is to, to love God with all your heart and soul. And the second is likened to it, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. 
for the second book, for One Big Heart, um, a celebration of being more alike than different, I felt like with the the current climate that you know our country and world really is in right now, I wanted to reinforce. And I think that that's important because it's not like a new lesson for children. I think that children really already get um, that they're not first focusing on our differences. You know, my son's five and, and when he comes home and he's met a new friend, he doesn't tell me about their race or their background or religion or culture. He just says what they have in common. They both like Legos or drawing pictures or whatever it is. And so I wanted to reinforce that notion for him and and other children and, and parents who I think find that same value important to put in place for their children. You know, people will often say that, oh, children don't see color. And I totally disagree with that. I think that they do see color. They just don't assign a value to it. Quite often, it's adults who do that. And I think that when you look at the hate crimes that are rising the last three years, they've ticked up year over year. And I think that a lot of that is a fear of the unknown. And when people have not been exposed to people who look different, for people who have different beliefs who act differently, perhaps, that there becomes this like we versus they, this us versus them attitude. And I think that that becomes so divisive, especially then when people are playing and preying upon dividing and making our differences the first thing that you notice. What I believe it's really imperative for parents is to expose their children to kids who are different, right? And so maybe you live in an area that's not very diverse. So they're not seeing that diversity in school or church or synagogue or on the playground. I think then you have to kind of look at what other tools do you have? Their dolls, their toys, their books. And those are ways that I think that it's very easy for children to just be exposed and experience people who may look different from them, right? Because I mean, the, the premise of One Big Heart is let's deal with it, let's talk about it. People call it the elephant in the room, right? But again, because I believe that children do notice difference, um, let's say, yes, hey, we have different color skin and hair and features and likes and dislikes, but guess what? You know, God gave us all this one unique gift. He gave us all one big heart, and that's the most important part because that's where love starts. You can find Lindsay's book, One Big Heart, at your favorite bookseller today. Stay tuned to hear Angela and Grace Anna Rogers' story after a brief message about a special edition of Jesus Calling, just for families. There's a special version of Jesus Calling available just for adults and children to do their devotions together called the Jesus Calling Family Devotional. Each day offers an adult devotion from Jesus Calling and a children's devotion excerpted from Jesus Calling 365 Devotions for Kids. With the devotions side-by-side side for children, parents and children can read their own devotion and then read, talk, and pray together. These beloved devotions are based on Scripture and include enriching questions designed to bring your family closer to each other and to God. To learn more about the Jesus Calling Family Devotional, please visit JesusCalling.com today. On the heels of several heartbreaking miscarriages, Angela Rogers found out she was pregnant again. After a visit to the doctor for testing during her third trimester, she received some sobering news. The baby had numerous issues and would likely be born with severe health problems. At that same time, Angela found out she was having a girl, and the moment she saw her heartbeat, she knew she loved her and would fight for her life. After Grace Anna was born, the baby's problems were so severe, Angela couldn't even hold her in her arms. Instead, Angela would sing to the baby, and through the ensuing years, as Grace Anna withstood countless surgeries, she became a bubbly toddler who loved to sing. Her performance of the national anthem at a sporting event when she was only four years old captured the hearts of Facebook fans everywhere to the tune of over four million views. 
Now, nine years old, Grace Anna is still singing and bringing joy to those who hear her. And she and her mom want to spread the message that every person has a purpose from God, no matter what they struggle with. My name is Grace Anna. I am nine years old, and I have a rare form of dwarfism called Kenrati Hunterman Syndrome. Um, I, it makes my back curl up, and it won't let me grow all the way. And that's part of the reason why I'm in a wheelchair. And um, I just had a hip surgery not too long ago. Uh, my name is Angela Rogers. I am an author of Grace Anna Sings and our new children's book, Who Do You See When You Look at Me? I'm a former middle school science teacher. And I'm also an advocate for people with disabilities and for recreational equipment for people of all abilities to be able to play together. And Grace Anna and Isaiah's mom. (laughs) (laughs) So when I became pregnant with Grace Anna, you know, in the back of my head, I always worried that something else might happen with her. I didn't, until the third month, gain a whole lot of hope because, you know, with most pregnancies, the first trimester you try not to get overexcited because um, that's when most pregnancies, if you're going to miscarry, happen. But at the third month into my pregnancy, we went to doctors in Lexington, Kentucky, and they told us that something was wrong. They didn't know exactly what was wrong. Her, her thighs were measuring um, not the correct age for how long I was pregnant, and they thought there was some malformation at her brain stem. And they kind of suggested that I had options about the pregnancy. And we made it very clear to the doctor at the time that our option was to have this baby, that we loved her. And it didn't make any difference to us what they told us. We wanted this little girl. And they told us at that appointment at three months that she was going to be a girl. And I thought that was pretty cool. I didn't expect that. And, you know, just from the very beginning, we wanted her even when the doctors didn't give us a whole lot of hope. And it never was a thought in our head to terminate the pregnancy. We wanted Grace Anna from the very beginning. And from that very first ultrasound, when I saw her little heart beating, you know, I fell in love. Honestly, when she was born, she's always had this spirit about her. She's a fighter. She's full of life, full of love, and anything is possible. She was perfect to me, no matter what they said from the beginning. When Grace Anna's video went viral of her singing the national anthem, it was kind of crazy at first. You know, we did get um, a phone call from Sammy Kershaw. I know he used to do country music. His manager, and they said they had played it at his concert that night. And then we started getting a lot of emails from people The vast majority of the first ones were veterans and active military. And that really touched our hearts because we have a lot of veterans in our family. And anything that we can do as a family to lighten the load of our men and women in service and our veterans is something we absolutely want to be part of. But what would touch my heart so deeply is you would see these colonels and these generals with all these medals, be brought to tears when she would sing the national anthem. 
when we traveled to Topeka, Kansas, to sing for the Military Veteran Project with Melissa Jarbo at their gala, one of Colonel Garcia that had worked with President Reagan and President Bush asked to have a selfie with our daughter. And I just, it just blew my mind that this man that had served our country in many different ways and which I admired was asking to take a selfie with our four-year-old daughter at the time. She's always had this gift to touch others through her music and her story. And that video was the beginning of what has been an incredible journey for our family and especially for Grace Anna to touch the lives of so many people with her story and her voice. the way people smile when I hear me sing, especially friends and family. I like the way people cheer and they just jump and up and down. <laughs> we had the honor of meeting Bobby Henline at that gala also, and we had talked to Grace Anna about, you know, how God uh, makes each one of us different. And, you know, sometimes we go through things that changes who we become. And we discussed with her how Mr. Henline had been in uh, serving our country and he had got burnt and injured serving our country and that he might look a little different, but he's still the same person on the inside. And that's what we should really be concerned about is who somebody is on the inside. And when she met Bobby, she went right into his arms that evening at the gala and gave him a hug. And she really looks at the inside of somebody and who they are instead of, you know, just looking at somebody's shell and judging them by what they look like. I think God made each of us with neat gifts. We're all different in some way. So we can show love by being kind and try to learn from each other. Everybody was made by God, so He wants us to love each other. God has a plan for Grace Anna. He had a plan for her before she was even born. And, and we quote the scripture to her quite often about God knew her before He made her in my little belly, before He created her. He knew her. He knew her heart. He knew what she would become, and He had plans for her. And Grace Anna is no different than anybody else, just because she might be a little bit smaller and she has health issues, and she can't walk just like everybody else, but she can walk some. He can use her for His glory in the way that He wants to use her, and she can have joy and happiness and fulfillment through God in her daily walk in life. To find out more about Grace Anna, her music and the books, Grace Anna Sings, and Who Do You See When You Look At Me, please visit the Grace Anna Sings Facebook page. 
Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we speak with contemporary Christian music artist Austin French. A competitor on ABC's Rising Star and NBC's The Voice, Austin's first album debuted at number two on the iTunes Christian Album Chart. But Austin's journey to finding his voice of worship didn't come easy. He shares about the early heartbreak he experienced when he was rejected by the very people he thought were supposed to stand by him. My parents got a divorce when I was eight, and it was a really big thing in a small town in Georgia. We were the biggest church in the area. I remember the pastor coming to our house and sitting down, my two sisters and I and my mom, and saying, hey, we love you, we're hurting for you, but please never come back. Um, And then I decided at that point that, well, now my church is embarrassed of me, like I must have something wrong with me um, that the church can't handle. And so I kind of decided at that moment in my life, too, that I was just done with the church forever. I needed healing. I was hurting. I had had unforgiveness on my heart, scars that I just needed someone to heal and step in. And that night I met Jesus and everything changed. Do you love hearing these stories of faith weekly from people like you whose lives have been changed by a closer walk with God? then be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling Stories of Faith podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review so that we can reach others with these inspirational stories. And you can also see these interviews on video as part of our original web series, with a new interview premiering every other Sunday on Facebook Live. Find previously broadcast interviews on our YouTube channel on IGTV or on JesusCalling.com slash video.